Good afternoon, and thank you all so, so much for coming. Um, this is the launch of the Constitutional Studies Program at the university, which is a joint initiative between the Faculty of Law and the Department of Politics and International Relations. And uh, my name is Scott Peterson. I'm the inaugural holder of the Bingham Research Fellowship, um, which is a joint uh, appointment, again, between the faculty and the department in the Division of Social Sciences and with Balliol College. Um, we have a number of people who are going to speak, and I think we're going to begin with Liz Fraser this afternoon. Um, Liz is the new head of the Department of Politics and International Relations. Um, she's a, an official fellow of New College. Um, she's a political theorist of wide reputation. Uh, her most recent book is Ideas of Education, which she co-authored with Chris Brook, who's a Balliol um, alumnus, and she's also recently published Citizens' Reactions to European Integration, a comparison study of uh, different uh, responses to European integration on continents. Um, her political theory includes topics such as violence and statecraft, and my own connection with Liz comes from our joint receipt, receipt of an award <laughs> for being the only two Oxford undergraduate politics tutors who use WebLearn in our teaching. <laughs> So, Liz, thank you. Well, thank you very much, Scott, um, for that welcome. And can I just say how very, very pleased, on behalf of the Department of Politics and International Relations, I am to be present at this launch and how valuable we think, hope, intend that this new activity should be, both for the Law Department and for the uh, Department of Politics and International Relations. And I thought, I mean, Scott gave us a bit of a steer, and I thought I would begin by thinking about the history of the relationships between at least my bit of politics, political theory, and law in this university, um, in order to underline how very meet it is that we should finally institutionalise that link, the link between the two departments... So, and of course it goes back, of course, a long way, but for those of us who are sitting around this table, people were just remembering being in this very room. Jeremy was remembering being in this very room, being lectured by Joseph Raz, but I remember being in this room, present at the seminars that were run jointly by Ronnie Dworkin and Jerry Cohen. Um, and there, were, there was a, a group of, of um, people, including Alan Ryan and Stephen Luke sometimes, who were thinking about, among other things, the relationship between law and politics, and I think situating themselves very definitely in a line that went back to HLA Hart's liberal concept of law, which from the outset was central to the political theory syllabus in this university as that was thought of, I think thought about by Isaiah Berlin and then developed by Alan Ryan, Stephen Lukes in conversation <coughs> with their colleagues in the law department, notably Dworkin and Raz. So in those seminars, Cohen and Dworkin were working out concepts and conceptions of equality in the context of justice, and they were thinking about justice in terms of what can justifiably 
be enforced. So that and that research program, that discussion, I think, has without a doubt set the political theory agenda for a generation, perhaps more than one generation. But we were also talking um, in the in our politics, political theory panel meeting this week about another mooted revision of our prelim syllabus. And Dan Butt, who's sitting over there, reminded us that the core course in the MPhil in politics for many, many years, taught by Geoffrey Marshall, was theories of law and state, Um, which, again... Uh, it does what it says on the tin. It puts law absolutely centrally in the concerns of politics. And in thinking about our syllabus as it's developed in the twenty-five year, in the last twenty-five years, and as it might develop in the next three years, we were thinking to ourselves that theories of law and state, or something very like it, is probably due for something of a revival, both. Uh, in our undergraduate and also in our graduate syllabus. And I think that that is going to happen. And I very much hope that um, that the development of this centre is going to give a kind of intellectual impetus to us really going back, it would be, in our case, going back to an agenda that was set 50 years ago that we sort of moved away from somewhat in the last 20 years but is by no means exhausted. It seems to me that thinking about how these two kinds of power, kinds of institution interact is absolutely central to all our concerns. Hart's liberal view, as I understand it, is that there was freedom where the law does not constrain. Of course, he was also interested in freedom where other things, like other people, didn't constrain either. But in political theory, the political theory that spoke to and came out of Hart's understanding, central to that is the idea that public policy-making and the political effort that propels public policies to being accepted and being legitimate is to be directed in the direction of, for Hart, there should not be a law against it. For Hart, we needed, and for other liberal thinkers, we needed realms of freedom where we were unconstrained by law. And, of course, sexuality and homosexuality was absolutely central to his agenda. Subsequently, of course, and this is in, as it were, my intellectual career... The principle that there shouldn't be a law against it came very threatened by the idea, rather, that there ought to be a law against it. That the agenda of freedom from law being at the basis of liberty, both personal and social social and political, gave way to the idea that, for example, homosexual people cannot be free unless we have laws against homophobia, that we have to regulate social conduct, we have to regulate 
our social relationships and interactions in order to protect people from each other. And the way to do that is to pass, as it were, proscribing laws. And, of course, today, the Liberal Party, I mean, our very own UK Liberal Party, are wrestling with the consequences of a situation in which the legal standards of justification for any action being taken are the standards of justification. That individuals believe that their social interactions and their conduct is justified to the extent that it is not illegal and that they can properly be sanctioned, held to account socially and publicly only if their actions are proscribed by law. So if your actions are not illegal, then the question of the legitimacy of being called, as it were, being held to account in public discourse, whether that's in political settings or in social settings, has become highly problematic in societies like ours. So we're left, it seems to me, of course this is a very large question, these are very complicated ideas, uh, complicated problems, but we're left with an idea of politics that confines it, politics, is the process of campaigning, bringing it about that there is a law against it, or there is, or for the repeal of a law, which is, um, which is uh, proscribing some kind of action. So politics is for law. That seems to be a dominant understanding of the political system. I think it's one that is, so to speak, intuitively plausible and recognisable. And I believe that it's highly problematic. I think it's very problematic from the point of view of law and law's own understanding of how it stands and what its function is in social, in social worlds, in society. And it's very problematic for politics and its own understanding of what the, politi- uh, the ends of politics are. The idea that the ends of politics are laws is one plausible idea, but it's also, it also constrains politics, I think, in ways that we may, on reflection, find very uncomfortable. And there's another story about the relationship between law and politics, which takes us on to the topic of this new forum, Constitution, I just today, funnily enough, have finished drafting a chapter on Shakespeare's play Coriolanus. In Shakespeare's story, which is based on a story which he got from Plutarch, um, Martius, named Coriolanus, is committed to the established constitution of his city. His city is Rome. And Martius's ideal Rome is one in which the patricians are in authority. Their decisions are law, although Martius is cognizant of traditions and institutions which constrain what decisions the patricians might make. But his understanding is that their decisions must be law and that law must be obeyed by 
the others, by the plebeians, by the citizens. And the play is about political challenges, different kinds of political challenges to Martius from his own fellow patricians, from the plebeians who threatened to riot, from various governmental officers, the tribunes, who, who use the constitution against Martius. They use it politically in that sense of politics, which by which we mean strategically, craftily, manipulatively. There's a key figure in, in uh, Shakespeare's play, Tullus Alphidius, who is Martius's old military enemy with whom he has a passionate engagement. They, their relationship veers between enmity, which is based on physical combat, and then friendship and allegiance and finally treachery and death. And there's a very important speech in this play in which Alphidius says he's thinking about Martius and the way Martius is arrogant, the way he proclaims his own power, not just as a member of the patrician class, but as an individual who is a hero. And in the course of this long speech, Alphidius says, power unto itself most commendable hath not a tomb so evident as a chair to extol what it hath done. One fire drives out fire, one nail, one nail. Rights by rights falter, strengths by strength do fail. He's saying two things there. First, that power that proclaims itself will be opposed. So a constitution that speaks itself will generate resistance, dissent, questioning. People will argue the toss about it. It will become a matter for argument. And he thinks that this is a fault or a, a weakness in Martius's position. But it's that final balancing motif in Alphidius's um, speech, which I think is really interesting, rights by rights falter, strengths by strength do fail. If power exerts itself, then there will be power that will generate itself in opposition. If you proclaim a right, other people will proclaim rights about against you. Wherever there's power, there will be resistance to it. Now, constitutional principles, of course, on the one hand, seek to transcend the social and cultural contexts that they also seek to constrain. The point is to get, so to speak, outside of it. But, of course, we know that politics will always bear on constitutions just as constitutions seek to constrain politics and that I guess is one way of setting out one element of the um, program for this new venture and I personally hope that it goes very very well indeed. Thanks very much. Um, I just I want to take just a brief moment myself and go over a few of the things that we've accomplished so far with the program and things that we're anticipating 
um, accomplishing in the coming months and uh, years. Um, the objectives for the program are to implement interdisciplinary research between the Department of the Faculty of Law and the Department of Politics. Um, the, the methodological component for politics, um, for my own research, is going to focus mostly on comparative politics, um, historical politics, and tracing kinds of processes that happen. Um, some of you may know that my um, research on my doctorate had to do with the national churches in Great Britain and some changes that took place in their constitutional status early in the 20th century. Um, what this has done is to give me a chance to broaden that out um, so that uh, I can put it within the framework of constitutional change and constitutional stability. One of the risks with my work was that it was going to end up being church history, which would have been a bad result. Um, so it was in the politics department, and so we rescued it from that. Uh, but there, it's always teetering on the verge of becoming something that it shouldn't be. So this is what this does is to provide a really good methodological framework um, to put to make it into a case study that will um, have some impact on some other areas. Right now, I'm looking at the whole issue of constitutional entrenchment. Um, this past term, the program initiated a very um, well-attended series of lunchtime seminars for graduate students. Um, we had excellent presentations, uh, for example, on uh, decision-making in the German Constitutional Court and on uh, ratification of the U.S. Constitution and some uh, group agency problems that are involved in that. Uh, speakers for the coming term include a visiting scholar from um, Italy who works on the area of judicial dialogue and the creation of supranational legal norms. He's here from Italy. Um, we're in the planning stages of a new step forward um, in terms of publicizing um, freshly published works in this area. Um, we're in the process of launching a series of virtual symposia um, that will be connected with the department's blog, Politics Inspires. And um, we have funding from, um, in addition to the funding that's funding this whole project, and we have some additional funding in the, from the Higher Education Innovation Funding. Um, it was a round of grants that were given, and that has paid for um, editorial support for this uh, virtual symposium, and will pay for some other things that are involved with the blog. We'll be cross-posting those symposia with the politics department's blog and with the UK Constitutional Law uh, Association blog, which is one of the co-editors of that is here, uh, Nick Barber, who's speaking in a few moments. Um, participation will be balanced between politics people and people from the law faculty, and I think it'll be a really good way of promoting freshly published works. Um, going forward further, we'll be moving from um, virtual to live symposia, uh, certainly, and to conferences, and uh, even to uh, uh, for forthcoming uh, works, as well as ones that have been recently published. I wanted to just say a few words about Tom Bingham, Lord Bingham, after whom this, my position, um, has been, was named. Um, he was a graduate of Balliol, he earned first in modern history, and he was one of the first judges to support domestication of the European Convention on Human Rights in the UK law. He was extremely sensitive to center-periphery issues. Um, he was personally responsible for adding Wales to his title as Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales. And for political scientists, his really important accomplishment was, the, it was his very forceful advocacy of the independent Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, which we've just um, had put in place. Um, nevertheless, he retained for his whole career a very strong supporter of unalloy, unalloyed Dicean parliamentary sovereignty, I was just going back over one of the chapters in his book on the rule of law, which is a very full-throated um, defense of 
parliamentary sovereignty and not giving away any power to unelected judges, despite the fact that he had been one of the chief judges in the country. So that's a little bit of background, both about the program, about my research, and about where we're going. And our next speaker is going to be Nick Barber, who is the Wyatt Rushton Fellow and tutor-in-law at Trinity College. He's the author, most recently, of The Constitutional um, State, which is a very thin but very, very um, important book on the theory of (laughs) physically thin, but not thin in matter. And as I mentioned, he's also, he's written on a number of subjects uh, in institutional politics as well, self-defense of institutions, separation of powers, and constitutional conventions. Um, so thank you very much, Nick. Thank you very much, Scott. Um, it's nice to be back here in the, uh, uh, the Balliol Bunker, this beautiful piece of uh, Cold War architecture. It's a, it's a little known fact that in the event of a nuclear holocaust, um, the only surviving creatures will be cockroaches and members of the Balliol College SCR. <laughs> um, this new body um, aims to bring together law and politics um, with constitutional scholarship as the fulcrum of the connection. And it's a great idea. But when Scott asked me to speak at the seminar, I was unsure what to say, because it's so obviously a great idea. Um, and I'm worried that we're all going to agree. Um, perhaps we will, or maybe there'll be some, something we can disagree with uh, uh, later. So I started to wonder where this division had come from. How come there was a divide between constitutional scholarship and um, political science? Because the divide is, I think, a very recent one, a very recent one. If we go back to the start of the last century, I don't think the divide really existed at all. If we take Albert Van Dicey, the great Victorian scholar and member of Trinity College, thank you, uh, 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 next door, Dicey's often criticised as being overly legalistic, perhaps even formalistic. But if you actually go back and read what you wrote, read what he wrote, um, it is an account of the Constitution that is firmly anchored in and informed by political reality. It might look old-fashioned now, but that's because it was 150 years ago. At the centre of Dicey's study of the law of the Constitution is a recognition that you can't understand the law by just looking at the legal rules alone. You have to understand the political context in which the law operates. Dicey wasn't the first person to talk about constitutional conventions non-legal social rules that structure the Constitution. But he was perhaps the first person to give us a systematic and thought-out account of their operation. So when Dicey was writing, politics and constitutional law were intertwined. Now, like all successful academics, Dicey was vilified and scorned by those who followed him. Um, But they too, I think, recognised the importance of understanding law in a political context. Lasky and Robson at the LSE, for example, span the disciplines. You could see them as constitutional lawyers or as political scientists. They were doing the same type of thing. Moving more recently um, in the political science department in Oxford, there were plenty of political scientists who could, without blushing, have taken a, 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 a chair in the law department. So Kenneth Weir, Geoffrey Marshall, and most recently Vernon Bogdanall are all people in the political science department who were, in effect, doing constitutional law. They very I had the good fortune to meet Geoffrey Marshall, I know, of Vernon. They very modestly deny that they're lawyers, 
But it's a lie. It's a false modesty. They are doing law, and they have an impressive grasp of it. So this split between law and politics as disciplines is very recent. Now, there is little to be gained in trying to apportion blame, but that's not going to stop me. Uh, uh, <laughs> and I think there are faults on both sides, on both the law and the politics side. So, looking at law, first of all, um, I think maybe the, 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 the problem there is that since the 1960s in the law department, there has been a focus on the common law and a focus on reasoning before the Supreme Court. We do an extremely good job in training our students <laughs> to argue a case before the Supreme Court. And it's a source of great sadness to them that they discover that once leave, they leave Oxford, that's not the first thing they're asked to do. <laughs> we teach them to reason about legal principles, we teach them to analyse cases, we teach them to regard the Court of Appeal as a bunch of uppity upstarts constantly getting the law wrong. Um, what we don't do is we don't teach them how to uh, 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 critique the actual operation of the law. We don't teach them how to study how law actually operates um, in the real world, how law could be changed. Law, to see law as a tool that makes uh, uh, a, a difference. And I think, uh, and Professor Wardren can tell me more about this, but um, legal philosophy in the law department has taken a similar turn. Um, legal philosophy since the 1960s has shifted to what I think is, and I'm not sure, and I've been there for almost 20 years, God help me, conceptual analysis. Yeah. So there's a study of the concept of law. Hart's great book, and it is a great book, it's a fantastic book, The Concept of Law. It's a study of the concept of law. What is the concept of law? I know what law is, but I'm not sure what the concept of law is. And we have this slightly unsure, or at least I'm unsure, uh, 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 um, focus in legal philosophy um, on conceptual analysis. And I'm unsure whether when we analyse a concept, this is a study of what the community understands the thing to be, law, or whether when we analyse a concept, this is meant to stand as a proxy for the study of the nature of the thing in the community. Um, so are we trying to study law? our community's idea of law, and if, if we're trying to study either of these, how come we can do it without going out and actually doing some proper political studies of either what people think law is or how law operates in our community? But maybe Professor Waldron can, 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 can uh, uh, explain to me what it is people are do, trying to do, because when I ask uh, uh, some of my colleagues, I'm not very clear when I get the answer. You're absolutely right. So, uh, uh, my worry is in the law department, <coughs> law has been elevated to a religion, a magical religion. We reason with the rules, we identify the rules, and we assume that reality will then, dog-like, faithfully track those rules. If we change law, we change reality itself. Reality has been pushed to one side uh, uh, in the last um, um, 40 or 50 years. Well, um, um, sometimes I think that legal scholarship needs a, a, a bit of a, a wake-up. Um, we, need, we need something to start us out of our complacency, like a, like a UKIP voter struck by lightning, to give us something to give us pause for thought and <coughs> reflection. Um, but I'm not just going to criticise the lawyers. I think, I think you political scientists, well, those of you who are political scientists, also perhaps are, 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 are at fault. From the outside, it seems to me that political science has become 
in the last 20 years less interested in institutions and rules and structures. Um, and game theory, I think, from my little knowledge of the subject, took political science a long way away from what we in the law department did, maybe reinforcing our parochialism. Um, I hope that political science is coming back. And I know that Professor McLean's book, I think, I don't, know if I'd want, I don't know if you'd be willing to own up to it being hidden game theory, but it was taking some of the insights of game theory but putting them in a way that um, um, can inform a debate about constitutional institutions. Um, so, uh, 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 we both, uh, uh, we're both at, uh, at fault for this split, and we should thank Scott for, for, for reuniting what's being cast asunder. So I've written here, what can politics learn from law, and what can law learn from politics? Well, first, politics. What can you political scientists learn from law? Well, I should be careful here, because I'm not sure what you have learned from law. But um, I think first, um, sometimes when I talk to political scientists, there is perhaps a risk to fail to see how law can frame political outcomes. There is a stickiness to law. It's not magic. It doesn't determine reality. That's a, that's a fiction that John Griffiths was, was, was rightly railing against. But it does shape reality. Legal rules shape reality. Now, um, I know we're going to be talking about Scotland in a little while, and I'd love to talk much more about the Scottish independence issue if you want me to. You have to ask me to, but I'm happy to. Um, the Scottish independence campaign is, is, is riven with unresolved legal questions that legal scholars need to um, um, illuminate to uh, um, inform the debate. The, the one that strikes me most potently is the question of Scotland and the European Union. And maybe Paul should be uh, speaking to this one. The Scottish white paper, so-called, from the SNP, has a wildly optimistic view, a Pollyanna view, a wildly optimistic view about the likelihood and the ease with which Scotland can join the European Union. Everybody agrees now, it seems, that when uh, Scotland becomes independent, it must join the European Union. It's not going to be automatically a member. Um, the Scottish uh, uh, White Paper says that um, in the process after a vote for independence succeeds and independence occurs, the treaties will be amended, amended to allow Scotland to become a member of the European Union so that on day one of the new Scottish state it will be a member of the European Union. Well, um, this is perhaps an example of where the lawyers might help out the political scientists. Because this process is going to be structured and informed by the law of the European Union. Now, the Scotland's White Paper, Scotland's Future, optimistically hopes that Article 48, rather than Article 49, will be the one that will be used to allow Scotland to join the Union. I say optimistically because Article 49 is the article that concerns states that want to gain admission to the European Union. So, at least on the face of it, you'd have thought Article 49 was the one that Scotland would have to use. If so, it looks like Scotland would have to be an independent sovereign state before starting the application process. No, they don't want that. Um, but if we turn to Article 48, the process that Scotland, that the SNP proposes to go through, well, you can look at my blog post to read it, but there are five, at least five stages of negotiations that would have to be gone through. All the member states would have to ratify the amended treaties. France would probably have to have a referendum to allow Scotland to join. And according to the Scottish White Paper, all of this will be accomplished in 18 months. 
Let me pause for a dramatic emphasis. All of this will be accomplished in 18 months, according to White Paper. Scotland will start negotiations. There will be a, a, a convention established. The European Council will make recommendations. The European Parliament will have its say. All of the member states of the European Union, of which there are how many, Paul? 28. Just, just testing. 28. We'll all have to ratify these amendments, and France will have to have a referendum. Well, this is an area in which... And perhaps Ireland, maybe Ireland too. This is an area in which the constitutional laws can, can, can inform the political debate, and it shows, maybe Denmark, it gets worse. <laughs> but it shows how law has a stickiness. Law structures how these political debates are run, and an understanding of law can expose the unreality of, of, of some political aspirations. Um, so, what on the other hand, so politics can learn from law in that if you want to understand um, um, the political structure of society, you have to factor in law. Law is perhaps politics by other means. It structures how politics is behaved. It's not definitive, but it, it is sticky. It's hard to get rid of. But I think law has even more to learn from political science than political science has from law. First, we need to relocate law, and in particular constitutional law, as part of the social sciences more broadly. And perhaps we should be thinking about the skill sets we teach our undergraduates on the law course. We don't teach the undergraduates how to understand statistics. We don't teach them how to analyse um, evidence. We don't teach them about probability and risk. These are all technical skills that they would need if they wanted to understand how law impacted on society, that they would need if they wanted to consider how law should be reformed and changed to see law as a, a, a tool. Um, again, Scotland provides um, a, a, an interest, Scottish independence provides an interesting example of this. The negotiation process will require an understanding of both law and politics. If you want to craft the legal boundaries of the negotiation progress, process, you have to think about how the political pressures will play out in that uh, role. Lawyers, I think, tend to think that uh, 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 um, this will be conducted in an entirely legalistic way. My lawyer friends tell me, in Scotland's future, the SNP manifesto, um, a very tight deadline is set. The negotiations will be complete, or practically complete, after 18 months. And one of my lawyer friends said, well, that's a very good idea, because deadlines structure uh, 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 negotiation. But I'm sure a political scientist would tell you deadlines aren't helpful if only one party to the dispute accepts the deadline. <laughs> then they're a danger, they're a problem. One party is desperately trying to beat a deadline, the other party is sitting around uh, uh, sipping gin and, 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 and speculating on the future of the union. Um, another thing that has been claimed is that the United Kingdom is under an obligation to negotiate in good faith. And this will help out Scotland. Good faith, that's a nice legal term. A nice legal term. But no court would recognise this, even though it comes from Canada. No British court would recognise this. It's, it's, it's unenforceable. So I think politics can inform law by helping us understand <coughs> how law operates, how it's likely to operate, how we should structure law, and how we should use law to, 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 to condition and shape negotiating processes that we see in Scotland. If people want to hear me round further about the Scottish independence <laughs> issue, feel free to ask questions afterwards. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> um, our next speaker is Ian McLean. 
Um, this is one where I just have to say, uh, who needs no introduction, although I will. Um, he's a professor of politics and official fellow of Nuffield College. Um, he earned all his degrees here at Oxford. He's taught at the universities of Newcastle-upon-Tyne and Warwick, as well as here, and he's published What's Wrong with the British Constitution, um, which was a joint winner of the WJM McKenzie Prize for Best Book in 2010. He also just wrote a book called Scotland's Choices, and I co-authored um, a small book on legal, called Legally Married, which was an explainer book um, intended to inform debate about the issue of marriage in the in the UK and the sorry in the UK and the um, uh, Scottish Parliament. Um, we've collaborated on a number of things as well as that. So, Ian, thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> uh, I would like to say I'm. I'm a slave of PowerPoint, even when the down arrow doesn't seem to be... Ah, right. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, I'm not, in my remarks, going to talk about marriage, although that could be a whole subject in itself and it might come up in questions. I am going to talk about Scotland in quite an overlap with what Nick Barber has just said. Uh, but, uh, by comparison with Nick, I think I'm, I'm, I'm almost in the nationalist camp. Uh, I'm going to say that there's an intellectual form of Scottish nationalism that has provided the most powerful intellectual challenge to uh, the Dicean tradition about which you've already heard from, uh, from, from Liz and implicitly from Nick. Uh, and so I want to structure my brief remarks by saying that, yes, there has, there, there has been a theory of the UK constitution about which my policy and history books have been. It has been more about uh, among lawyers than among political scientists. I entirely agree that the two uh, split and that it's high time they went, went they came back together. I think they're, they're more <coughs> convergence than possibly some of my colleagues have, have acknowledged. Um, and I'm going to talk through a little bit about A.V. Dicey in the theory of parliamentary sovereignty. I'm going to talk about Dicey's Scottish blind spot although his last book was about the Act of Union uh, with, uh, between Scotland and England. It was co-authored by the historiographer Royal for Scotland, who I think supplied all the facts. Um, uh, but nevertheless, I maintain that uh, Dicey had a, um, an intellectual blind spot about Scotland, and he simply had a red mist for 20 or 30 years of his career when the subject of Ireland came up. And this made his, uh, his doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty <coughs> internally incoherent. And if it's, it's internally contradictory, and if from a contradiction anything, anything follows, you have to start again. And I want to draw attention to some Scots who were indeed Scottish nationalists. I'm going to talk about the case which almost no political scientist, but I hope every lawyer has heard of, McCormick the Lord Advocate, uh, and the, some of the issues between popular sovereignty, parliamentary sovereignty, and a rights-based regime that are thrown up by the, um, by the current, uh, indeed by the Scotland White Paper, about which I'm going to be slightly more polite than Nick just has been, uh, and the arguments on both sides uh, are on the current uh, issue of Scottish independence. Uh, and it's got, I hope to have time at the end to reflect on if Scotland leaves, can the rest of the UK remain uncodified. So to motivate this, I think I need to say something about Dicey's parliamentary 
sovereignty blind spot. So Dicey was, was at least two things. He was a, a systematizing lawyer. Uh, he was indeed a, as I agree with Nick, a, a political scientist avant la lettre. Uh, but he was also a passionate ideologue about the union of the United Kingdom as it was in his time, namely uh, Great Britain and Ireland. This meant that uh, he was a huge fan of the union with Scotland of 1707, about which, as I say, he co-wrote his last book. Uh, and he was also a huge fan of the union with Ireland of 1800, which was disintegrating in his time. And, in fact, right within a year of the publication of his Law of the Constitution, his, contra his contradictions were skewered by no less a person than W.E. Gladstone, uh, introducing the first Home Rule Bill in 1886, uh, which would give Ireland that devolved Parliament which Unionists for the succeeding 30 years were so passionately opposed to that the upshot was very close to being civil war in Ireland in 1914, providently prevented only by the outbreak of World War I instead. Um, in introducing his, his Home Rule Bill, Gladstone, to Dice's fury said that he'd been reading uh, Professor Dice's newly published lectures on the law of the Constitution, and he, noticed, he, he, he notes the doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty, which Dice exposes so eloquently. Therefore, among the things which Parliament can do, Gladstone perfectly properly says, is pass a statute for de devolved government in Ireland. Dicey did not like this, and he, he published four or five pamphlets, each more strident than the previous, uh, uh, denouncing Home Rule and in the Parliament of 1910 to until the outbreak of the First World War uh, he was he was he and colleagues were scraping around I've given chapter and verse in my book What's Wrong with the British Constitution I don't have time to repeat it now really for any device which would deny the legitimacy of the elected Parliament uh, uh, to uh, enact a Home Rule Bill for a, a Government of Ireland Act as it would become. Uh, Parliament, as he insisted, comprised three houses, and he's, of course, right there, the House of Commons, the House of Lords, and the, and, uh, the monarchy. Uh, the House of Lords has just, at the time, spectacularly shot itself in the foot by, refusing, by, by rejecting the budget of 1909. As a consequence, the Parliament Act 1911 stipulated that uh, an Act of Parliament could be passed without Lords' consent under certain conditions. And it was perfectly clear to everybody in politics at the time that the first act that would go through under this would be the Government of Ireland Act. The second would be the Welsh Church Disestablishment Act. Um, I don't think Dicey had strong opinions about Wales, but he sure as hell had strong opinions about Ireland. And so he wanted to deny that um, acts passed under the Parliament Act were properly acts of Parliament. He said the people should have a referendum instead. And when you look at his concept of the people, it turned out that it meant the people of England... The red mist which created the blind spot about Ireland meant that the people of Ireland, the people at any rate of the south, the, of, south of Ireland, of Catholic Ireland, uh, did not count as people when the opinions of their representatives in Parliament were to be polled, but they did count as people when it was a matter of the continuation of the British Empire. So I believe he was simply radically and um, ineradicably inconsistent about Ireland, on Scotland, 
Um, he very much wants to say that the Act of Union 1707 is fundamental legislation, but of course he's hoist with his own petard because um, Parliament in the Dicean Doctrine can do anything except bind its successor, and the Acts of Union, the final Act of Union, purport to do exactly that. And this was one of the this is one of the issues that came up in this to Scots and to some lawyers famous lawsuit in 1953. Like some other famous lawsuits, um, uh, like the one about the snail and the ginger beer, uh, the um, original dispute was particularly silly, in my view. Uh, Mr. McCormick, who was John McCormick, one of the leaders of the SNP of his generation, and relevantly the father of the late Neil McCormick, who is my, as some of you will have detected, my guru in these matters, uh, and his friend had been to court to complain about the title of Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, she was not Queen. She is not Queen Elizabeth II of Scotland because there has not been a Queen Elizabeth of Scotland before. Uh, well, this was a silly lawsuit because uh, it, with the judges had no difficulty in disposing of it on the grounds that the title of the Queen is a matter of the royal prerogative. The Queen can call herself anything she jolly well likes, and us plebeians can do nothing about it. And that seems to be a correct interpretation of the law. <laughs> Having disposed of the main argument, this may have lay, led Lord Cooper, Lord President, i.e. the senior Scottish judge at the time, uh, to make remarks which are both, I think, profound and devastating, and, and I've got them up here, I won't, read, I won't read it all out. But analysing the Treaty and Acts of Union, 1707, he observes that there are clauses which expressly reserve powers of subsequent modification. So there's some stuff in the Act of Union about salt tax, which a later government could change, for instance. And other clauses, as he says, which either <coughs> contain no such power or emphatically exclude subsequent alteration by declaration that provision shall be fundamental and unalterable for all times coming. Uh, which is the case for the provisions related to the Church of Scotland and to Scots law, things which really mattered to the Scottish negotiators back in 1707. And here's the, here's the I think, um, the completely uh, uh, knockdown argument against Dicey. I have never been able to understand how it's possible to reconcile with elementary canons of statutory construction the adoption by the English constitutional theorists, and we know who he means, of the same attitude to these markedly different types of provision. So uh, I don't think Dicey ever got out of the intellectual incoherence in relation to Scotland, and he was also uh, intellectually incoherent in relation to Ireland. Now, turning to the same document that Nick just talked about, the Scottish Government's white, recent white paper, uh, as I say, I'm going to be slightly nicer about it, uh, because in the McCormick, the John McCormick, but more relevantly the Neil McCormick tradition, and Neil McCormick was uh, a Scottish nationalist MEP for part of his career, I think not the happiest part of his career, but he was a constitutional advisor to the, to the, to the party, uh, and... Uh, they do say that, say that uh, if Scotland votes yes later this year, there will be a constitutional convention. So uh, I'm very happy with that. I'm, I'm because I'm a McCormickite or a Cooperite, Lord Cooper, uh, or I think the the U.S. Uh, constitutional convention of 1787 or the two Australian constitutional conventions of 1892 and 1900 uh, were serious about consulting the people. And I am fundamentally, I think, a plebeian, not a patrician, so I'm rather keen on the people being consulted. So up to that uh, point, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm keen 
on the idea of the Constitutional Convention in, contained in the, Scot in the Scottish Government White Paper. However, the Scottish Government, in my view, inconsistently, then lays out the issues which, it, uh, which the Constitutional Convention is to decide, and one of them, you know, intrinsically trivial, but nevertheless, it starts with the, 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 this Convention and the, the ensuing Constitution will provide for the continuity of the monarchy in Scotland. Well, what if the members of the Constitutional Convention don't want that? Or what if they want to put that question to popular ratification, as has been done in Australia, for instance? Um, it's a bit inconsistent to say that the people will decide or will ratify the Constitution and then prescribe what the Constitution will contain. So the people, according to the White Paper, are to be partly sovereign, mm. which to me seems to be like being partly a virgin. Perhaps I'm not being more polite than Nick was, after all. Uh, and the, there is no clear ratification procedure set out in the White Paper. So, I want to apply a dose of Marxist realism. Uh, John Griffith has already been mentioned, uh, the uh, uh, law or politics professor at LSE in the era, or just after uh, Lasky and Robson, who have been mentioned. Uh, and I like his formulation that the Constitution is what happens. It gets away from the mystic, mysticism of the law that has been mentioned earlier. So I think two things are happening, and they're brought into focus by the Scottish referendum. One is a bunch of people who are making demands for popular sovereignty, uh, and I think there is an intellectual vacuum caused by the collapse of the Dicean doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty into which these demands might fall. So um, Scotland elects its legislature. Might, in, might induce me to go home if, uh, if the vote is yes. I like living under an elected parliament. Uh, the UK does not have an elected parliament. The UK has, as Dicey correctly said, parliament comprising three chambers, but one of them is elected. Two of them are not. Um, uh, as to bishops, I will not say anything unless severely tempted in questioning. Uh, I will instead... Uh, this, is, um, this is 40 years before... 40 years before publication of Locke's Second Treatise, and one of my puzzlements, I don't go to the political theory panel uh, anymore, but one of my puzzlements is why uh, politics students are made to study Locke rather than Rainborough, who said the same thing more concisely and more radically 40 years earlier. Um, the poorest he that is in England hath a life to live as the greatest he, and therefore truly, sir, I think it is clear to every man that is to live under a government ought, ought first by his own consent to put himself under that. Now, one of the reasons for the neglect of the Putney debates was that they were literally unknown until they were rediscovered 100 yards from here at Worcester uh, in the 1890s. Um, but uh, they are, I think their importance is being, is being uh, uh, re-emphasised. And when I was preparing this slide, I discovered that Rainborough's speech was retweeted by the history of Parliament quite recently. So it lives to an, an, a, another day. And this is the challenge of those who would like more popular sovereignty. Rather, quite a modest challenge, but um, uh, I'll say we, because anybody who, can look up, who looks up my book will find out that I am one of those, uh, rather like the idea of being governed by elected politicians. Um, from another <coughs> angle come demands for rights entrenchment, which have been discussed earlier this evening. Uh, they're driven by the European Convention on Human Rights, by the Human Rights Act uh, 1998, they are clearly having a demonstrable effect on judges' behaviour and possibly, therefore, indirectly on government and executive behaviour. 
And, of course, not only are rights and popular sovereignty not the same thing, at some level they're incompatible. Popular majorities can, after all, pass legislation which, uh, uh, which hurts the rights of minorities. Um, <clears throat> only within the last two weeks we have heard of stridently anti-gay legislation being passed in well being passed in Nigeria it's not clear whether it's been enacted in Uganda or not but in Nigeria at least um, uh, I'm, what I read tells me that it's hu- tremendously popular mm-hmm. but it's clearly rights violating as we would see rights um, now in the UK uh, we do currently have political pushback, as everybody in the room knows, against the European Convention on Human Rights regime, and it comes at various different levels. There's a legal issue, um, which has already been referred to, uh, but at the, at the level of gut politics, um, uh, Europe is a bad place. Europeans are bad people. Uh, we don't make fine distinctions between the European Union and the, Europe, and the Council of Europe. They're both Europe, and they both produce uh, things that we don't like. Uh, quite clearly, the politics behind this is is the well-justified fear of um, a, a UKIP surge, which there for sure will be in this year's Euro elections, and there might be in later elections. Um, I observe in passing that, uh, as a political scientist, the one difference, although a lot of hooey has talked about how the Scots are more left-wing than the English, that's, that's false, but... Uh, UKIP has traction in England it does not have traction in Scotland it does very badly in Scottish elections and my analysis of the reason for this is simply that uh, Scots who hate foreigners already have a party to vote for (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so the Scottish government isn't worried about UKIP and therefore is not worried about anti-ECHR politics Um, but rights are obviously everybody in this room knows inherently counter-majoritarian so whether we should have, or whether UK or rest of UK or Scotland should have entrenched rights is still up for argument. Uh, Scotland is already bound as a, as a subordinate legislature to respect um, ECHR rights, and the Scottish Government in its white paper has said that will continue. rest of the UK, I'm not <coughs> sure. If Scotland leaves, can the rest of the UK remain uncodified? Well, the, one of the presenting problems will have been repealed, the Act of Union, 1707, the other one uh, was, in effect, well, disappeared in 1921, despite Dicey's efforts. Most of Ireland became independent. Uh, but nevertheless, I think um, constitutional discussions could give some satisfaction both to popular sovereigntists and to rights protectors without those two coming into conflict. For instance, um, we might get an elected legislature. I think that would be a good idea, and it would not in itself harm rights. We might stay in the ECHR regime, as I think cleverly uh, uh, interpreted by the, by the UK Human Rights Act 1998. I don't think that entrenches on popular or parliamentary sovereignty, although I know that Lord Sumption and some other lords have argu- uh, lawyers have argued differently. Many, but not all, senior UK judges are rights-protecting. So I've used Scotland as a prism through which to talk about quite a number of constitutional issues, and I've talked for too long, so I'll stop. Thanks very much, Ian. Um, final, the final speaker is Jeremy Walden, who once again needs no introduction on either side of the Atlantic. 
Um, Jeremy is a Chichley Professor of Social and Political Theory and a Fellow of All Souls. He's the author of numerous books and articles, including Torture, Terror, and Trade-Offs, God, Lock, Inequality, and most recently, The Harm and Hate Speech. Um, he's a member of the American Academy of the Arts, a fellow of the British Academy, and I actually had paths crossed with Jeremy a long, long time ago, uh, which made more of a difference to me than it did to him. But I was, when I was a student at the University of uh, California, he was a professor in the program, which is uh, another very interdisciplinary program. It's called the Program of Jurisprudence and Social Policy, which was affiliated with the law school that I attended. <clears throat> I went to a number of his seminars when he was at um, Cal, and it was uh, they were always just as worthwhile as what I'm sure he's going to say this evening. So thank you. Thank, thank you, Scott. Um, this has been a long evening so far, and I, I won't go on too long. I do want to bring us back to the uh, Center for the Constitutional Studies program and say a little bit about it and a little bit about its mission. Before I say anything else, I want to give my compliments and congratulations to Scott uh, for getting this. And I also want to give thanks and compliments to those who have made this uh, possible. I think it's, 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 it's a tremendous achievement and it will do good things. We know that it's established to promote interdisciplinary research between these two units, the Politics and International Relations Department and the School of Law. Uh, and obviously I welcome this collaboration for some of the reasons, all of the reasons I think that Nick Barber uh, mentioned. I feel quite strongly about this. Um, since 1987 I've been teaching in law schools uh, in the United States. I taught at the University of California at Berkeley, I taught at uh, Columbia Law School, taught at NYU Law School, still have a connection with NYU Law School. And apart from a... Um, uh, a year at Princeton, which doesn't have a law school, that was that. That's really been my career until I came to Oxford and back into politics departments. But I never felt that political theory, which is what I do here, and legal philosophy, which is what I teach in the law schools, are markedly different from one another. I agree. I agree entirely with what Nick Barber said about the unfortunate narrowing of the focus of legal philosophy. Um, I was a student of Ronald Dworkin, and one of Dworkin's great virtues was the ability to seamlessly open up constitutional issues uh, on the basis of legal philosophy rather than pin everything down to the question of how many letters are there in the word law and what's the difference between positive and negative positivism and, um, and so on. So it is very, very good to have this prospect of connection with lawyers who believe in constitutional theory. Um, political scientists who believe in constitutional theory and, and constitutional ideas. I hope, I really hope this works at the level of students as well as at the level of faculty research. Um, I think it's very important to establish a strong and robust meeting ground for law and politics. I fear that when it was in, in, in previous manifestations in the work of Hart, in the work of my predecessor, Cohen, the, the meeting ground for law and um, politics was moral philosophy. Mm. Yeah? And that has had a tremendously um, corroding impact, I think, on, on both the law school, on legal philosophy, most of whom are sort of wannabe moral philosophers who just want the higher salaries, as we say in America, that you can get in law schools. And, and on the, on the, uh, the lawyers, too, who... Um, 
excuse me, on, on the political philosophers who have mostly been doing moral philosophy about justice and about rights without any real connection to institutions and institutional reality. I do think when we were allocating blame, um, uh, when Nick was speaking before, that we should have said something about moral philosophy being the kind of culprit in this, not just in what it did for itself, but in luring away the attention of the best people in legal theory and in political theory onto its own turf rather than letting them develop uh, what's really important to do uh, in the theory of politics and in the philosophy of law. Now, the core research aims of this program, as I understand it, uh, is to sponsor research, which will apply social science techniques to improve the quality of public and academic debate on the UK constitution. Um, Scott has said in his mission statement that this will have a substantial policy emphasis. It will engage legislators and other policymakers in an effort to ensure that the research does receive public attention and it will shape practical constitutional debate in the UK Parliament and in Whitehall. And that, I think, is fabulous, and I'm sure there's a great hunger for it. There is a great hunger for it uh, in the political community beyond the walls of this university. So these are laudable aims, but I would like to add to these aims or to suggest an addition that we try, it's a very selfish agenda, we try to have this new study of constitutional politics impact back on political theory and on the teaching of political theory. Because um, I believe that at the moment we are more or less guilty of um, false trade description for political theory, we are not teaching people the theory of politics. We're teaching them something which is a little bit like moral philosophy, but we're not teaching them the theory of politics at all. And a greater emphasis on constitutional theory and a greater impact of the uh, constitutional studies program on the teaching of political theory would, would be very important. Some of you, I think, heard the inaugural lecture that I gave in uh, 2012 called Political, Political Theory, which was published then in the Journal of Political Philosophy at the beginning of 2013, where I said that I felt very strongly that we've been selling short the structural, institutional, and constitutional side of the theory of politics. And I think this is nowhere more evident than when we think about the bearing of political theory on the constitutional matters that are on the agenda for British public decision. Um, I think of devolution, obviously, the move towards federal structure, which has been partially complete in the last 10 or 15 years. Obviously, the referendum about the secession and independence for Scotland, which will be a massive transformation in constitutional structure. The continuing question about whether there should be a codified constitution for the United States, for, for the United Kingdom, as there is in the United States. Um, Ongoing, sometimes very frustrating reform of the House of Lords, the expulsion of the judges, the perseverance of the bishops, the eradication of most of the congenitals, and the, the, the ongoing question about whether the House of Lords ought to have any elective component as well. I believe that before we are ready for it, we are going to face questions about the abolition of the monarchy. I believe that when the old queen dies... There'll be some serious consideration given, probably initially in the Commonwealth, probably led by Australia. The Canadians seem to be abject in this, in, this, in, this, in this relation, but the Australians have done this before, and they may well do it 
again when it comes to the question of whether the, um, the heir apparent should take the Australian throne. So I think when the old queen dies, there will be a question about um, the continuation of the monarchy. People will give some thought to some of the issues that Ian has raised about being subject partly to an unelected um, head of state in this way. Not just the powers of the monarch herself in deciding what she should be called or any of the other royal prerogative features, but the fact that government in this country takes on a particularly overwhelming flavor from the fact of monarchy. Yeah? In the United States, we don't call the IRS the president's revenue. We don't call the prisons the president's prisons. Yeah? We don't call the armed forces the president's armed forces. Yet here in this country, with its constitution, we have a hereditary official whose name is attached to all of the great institutions of state. And that doesn't give um, the woman Elizabeth herself any great power, but it probably gives the executive greater power than, and status than it would have in a properly uh, Republican uh, arrangement. Montesquieu very charitably observed that Britain was really a republic in the fancy dress of a monarchy. Um, the CIA seems to believe differently. Um, the CIA has country reports on its website. You probably know about these. and describes the political system as a political taxonomy. And it describes Britain as a constitutional monarchy. Intriguingly, it describes New Zealand, my country, as a parliamentary democracy, even though that also has the monarchical, the monarchical uh, uh, element in it. But I do believe that whether it's the, the issue about Scotland or what the, how the Commonwealth will react to the succession of the possible succession of Charles III, um, this will be uh, an issue, and it, it will happen uh, without warning, um, and it will be an important question to face. So um, devolution, secession and independence of Scotland, reform of the House of Lords, possible uh, crisis with the monarchy, Britain's relation to the European Union, Britain's relation to the European Court of Human Rights and the European Convention of Human Rights, all, all of that that uh, Ian spoke about, the establishment of an independent Supreme Court now operating as an independent uh, institution with powers of strong judicial review of executive action and weak judicial review of uh, uh, legislation. These are hugely important issues. To contribute to these issues, to talk intelligently in these issues as a political theorist, as somebody in whom a certain amount of resources have been invested in training as a political theorist, you should know about some constitutional principles and some constitutional values. And I'm not saying that you should accept these principles, but you should know something about the idea of the separation of powers. You should know something about the principle of checks and balances. You should know something about the theory of bicameralism, for and against. You should know something about the theory of federalism and the different forms that federations may take. You should know something about the rule of law. You should know something about the principle of political equality, not the sort of equality that Jerry Cohen was studying, but political equality. You should know rival theories of representation. You should understand the application and the limits of the principle of loyal opposition. You should understand what there is in the way of a theory of constitutional monarchy. You should understand issues about establishment, disestablishment, and the separation of church and state. You should understand the notion of sovereignty, including parliamentary sovereignty. You should understand the idea of popular sovereignty. 
yeah? and the difficulties with that idea and the implications of that idea and the relationship between popular sovereignty on the one hand and democracy on the other hand. You should understand the theory of international institutions and the jurisprudence of international law. You should understand the possible distinction between higher law and ordinary law, like the Human Rights Act and so the ordinary legislation that it is supposed to discipline. You should understand the relationship between procedural values for institutions and values for institutions related to competence and output. Um, all of these things need to be understood, and we need also to understand the even deeper values like human dignity and human equality, as well as liberty um, and uh, empowerment that underlie these debates about these dozen or so principles. Because if there's anything I disagree with, with um, Ian, it's just his adoption of the Griffith slogan that the Constitution is just what happens. Constitutions do consist of rules, and the rules operate normatively. And people do sometimes accuse each other of acting unconstitutionally. And it's not necessarily, it's not always open to the culprit who faces this accusation to say, well, I did it, so it is constitutional. Yeah? Constitution has a normative structure, but more important, constitutional thinking, constitutional structure is underpinned by theoretical ideas. Constitutional structure is underpinned by deep and important values, not necessarily values that moral philosophers understand, who have had a problem with democracy since the days of Socrates, but, but values, principles, and understandings that it's incumbent on us to teach people when they're studying the, um, the, theory, the theory of politics. Um, I do think that it will be helpful if the, if the program um, makes a difference in our political theory teaching, especially at the undergraduate stage. At the undergraduate stage, we are educating hundreds of students in PPE, who most of whom, bright and wonderful as they are, will not go into the, the filthy, ego-bloated hovel of academic teaching, but will go out into, the, out into the, the world of business, think tanks, government, journalism. Uh, it all sounds very rosy. Most of them won't get jobs at all, but never mind. Uh, but they will become part of the British public. They will become what John Stuart Mill would call the intelligent part of the British public. And the intelligent part of the British pub public needs to have its constitutional consciousness raised, needs to become constitutionally literate. And one would imagine that one member of the public might say to another member of the public, hey, you studied the theory of politics too, didn't you? Maybe uh, you have an opinion on uh, uh, why we now have an independent Supreme Court. And the person will say, no, we never studied anything about that. We studied the 57 different varieties of Rawlsianism or something, <laughs> or something like that. We need to have people out there and to be putting people out there, to be educating people who can engage intelligently in constitutional dialogue and constitutional discussion. They don't need to, 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 to hew to any particular party line. They may well disagree with some of the positions that have been set out here today. But we need to have a constitutionally literate public. In the United States, where I've taught for the last uh, 20 years more, um, no student would graduate from a political science department without having been exposed to a considerable amount of detail 
about the, uh, the debate about judicial power, about counter-majoritarian rights, um, about the, the, uh, the use of judicial review and its relationship to democratic principles. People would have that under their belts, and not just at the level of a two-line UKIP prejudice, but at the level of a reasonably well-thought-through position that they would have learned in the political science department. Um, let me just finish on a personal note. I was, when I was here uh, 70 or 80 years ago, um, I was a student of Ronald Dworkin, who, as you know, passed away um, uh, almost a year ago, um, Valentine's Day. Last year I was visiting Bristol. Um, and many of us have been reflecting on Dworkin's contribution and what Dworkin meant to the different constituencies, the different countries in which he operated. In the United States, he was a constant and garrulous contributor to the New York Review of Books. I think he contributed over a hundred articles to that august publication. Many of which you wouldn't agree with. Many of which, if you went back and read them, you'd be quite surprised and probably would agree with them. And most of those articles were attempting to explain to the large readership of the New York Review of Books what was at stake, what was going on in constitutional jurisprudence. Yeah? Whether it was about affirmative action controversies in the 1970s or abortion controversies in the 70s, 80s, and 90s or issues about uh, 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 free speech free speech issues um, uh, Citizens United decision quite recently and so on, all the way back to some of the civil rights um, issues and issues about civil disobedience back in the 1960s. And a partial result of this was that there was a, a broad sense of what was at stake and why it might matter, uh, how the Supreme Court decided issues, how issues about constitutional rights played out. I have my own views about judicial review, and, and in another lifetime, Ian and I would go head to head on that. But I have no doubt of the importance of the institution of judicial review. And the fact was, both through regular training in political science departments, certainly in law schools, and certainly through the work of people like Dworkin uh, writing constantly about this, the American public was in a much better position to understand what was going on and what was at stake, and to form their adversarial positions with one another and against one another accordingly on the basis of an intelligent apprehension of the importance of constitutional principles. We have not had that in Great Britain. There are a few people, Connor Geraghty a little bit, Stephen Sedley a little bit in the London Review of Books have been writing, but it would make an immense difference to the infantile and uninformed animus against the European Court and Convention of Human Rights had there been that sort of uh, constitutional culture. Maybe, I hope it will develop here, but one way it can develop is in the teaching of the theory of politics, to see it not just as a discussion of what Foucault said to Habermas, but to see it, but to see it very much in the sense of wanting to teach constitutional principles, constitutional values, including skepticism about constitutional principles and skepticism about values, because even a skeptical account is an informed and deep uh, account, to make sure that that forms an important part of the theory of politics, which, as I stress, is not just moral philosophy with a vague relation to political questions. So for all of these reasons, I'm hugely encouraged by the institution of this program, and I hope that I can elicit some contribution on these fronts.
Thank you very much indeed.